Welcome to Darkly Lit, where during the winter holidays, we stay inside, cuddle by the fire, and pray that the silent companions do not come for us. I am your host, Kayla King. I'm joined by my not-so-silent companions, we have said. Good morning, or good evening, or whatever it is. And David. You will believe a trompe l'oeil can murder people. We have just finished reading the novel for our winter season uh, called The Silent Companions by Laura Purcell. Last book of the season. Woo! And Christmas does occur during the novel, so it was like, oh, great. Considering how bleak and cold this entire novel feels, this was a perfect, uh, like, December read, November, December read. Mm -hmm. Say this was your choice. Do you want to give a quick summary? I will try. (laughs) I was good for once and read the book well in advance. So it's been like a month and I've read and reread another book since. So this book is pretty far from my mind now that we're finally recording. So I'm going to keep this as brief as possible because I don't remember a lot of stuff. I'm probably going to be like, oh, yeah, a lot during this episode. But our main protagonist is Elsie, whose story is kind of unfolded kind of in three different perspectives. We have Elsie when we first meet her in the book. She is a patient at St. Joseph's um, and we learn that she's been in a terrible fire Uh, There's some suspicion around the recent death of her husband and some other deaths. Uh, She is prompted by her doctor to uh, relive what happened so that they can find out all the answers to the mystery by having Elsie write it all down, which is the other perspective of the narrative, which is, like I said, I think a year or so, year or two prior to when we find her in the hospital. Elsie is with child and uh, she is headed to the bridge with her brother Jolian and her cousin Sarah and it is after the recent death of her husband who had gone ahead to the bridge which is this lovely mansion dilapidating mansion that he meant to ready for them to live there with their kid um but suspicious murder no sorry suspicious death at that point (laughs) So she's arriving there under tragic circumstances. Things unfold. They discover in the attic, one, a journal that belonged to Anne, and I'll come back to that in a second, who was an ancestor of Elisa's husband and Sarah's ancestor. The other thing they find is a cutout of a small girl that is so beautifully and realistically painted, and we call that one the Silent Companion, and they bring that in the journal down, but then as, like, you know, weird little things happen here and there, now there's two companions and three companions, and where are all these things coming from? Why'd you move it to the kitchen? I didn't move it to the kitchen. Did you move it? I didn't touch it. They're creepy. And so it's kind of like, well, are we crazy? Are we haunted? 
arrested, and through the journal that they find, it belongs to Anne from 1635, and Anne is detailing her life with her wonderful husband and how they're going to host the king and the queen and how it must go so well, but her husband doesn't want their daughter, uh, Hedda, to be part of the celebration because she's a little weird and can't talk, and we kind of learn that Anne doubles in some white magic, and when she was not going to have a child anymore, she did some cool stuff and still had a child, but then things get creepy. And we suspect that it's all tied to why the Silent Companions are very creepy and murdering people. But was it the Silent Companions or was it Sarah all along? (laughs) I love the fact that she did something really creepy and really cool. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's that's still cool. I remember at least that I, I did enjoy reading the book. I thought it was pretty well paced. I enjoyed how there would be like a little detail at the end of the chapter oh, but now there's two companions or something. There's always a little line to kind of like hook you into the next chapter. Overall, I I had a good time with this book. I'm glad I picked it. Yeah, I, the best way I would describe this is this felt like a cozy horror to Mm -hmm. me. Like it it was one of those horrors like, okay, I could see where there's, what was going to happen. I could guess the ending fairly well, but it was like, ooh, I feel cuddly while I'm reading this. It's even though horrible things are happening and there's a quite the body count, but I also like that, oh no, this person is dead at the end. It was kind of like R.L. Stein, but done well. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. It's a- Yes, the chapters did have a lot of good cliffhangers that made you keep reading. I also appreciated the structure about how we kept switching perspectives from St. Joseph's to the bridge to Anne's journal and back again to various points. I was a little iffy about that when I first started it because I feel like the idea behind switching between the time periods is that present day it's Elsie in the asylum and she's writing from third person at the request of of her doctor, but the third person is very literary. Like nobody would write like this if they were just writing in a journal, but I can forgive it. Then there's like a weird turn where then you bring in the point of view of Anne and that's, supposedly Anne's story is coming from her own journal and it's written in first person. But again, it's also written very literary. It's not written in like ye olde English. Well, it doesn't need to be in ye olde English, but at least- I'm kind of glad it's not. I'm glad too, but- it doesn't feel like a diary necessarily. No. No, no, diaries would not write like that. I'm kind of okay with that. Just because, like, reading someone's diary would be so boring. So, like, I enjoy that there's that literally literary component. For me, it was off putting at first. And then eventually I got used to it. I, I think it was the fact I'm like, but wait, it's Elsie's not the one reading these. It's Sarah that's reading these, right? Does that get mentioned that Elsie was reading? The- Elsie reads the second volume, but the, the first volume is reiterate is iterated to Elsie by Sarah. So I understand the confusion, not the confusion, but I understand why it might feel weird for you because it's we're, go- we're doing a narrative within a narrative within a narrative, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's more that you felt like the, the prose of it just felt a little off considering what the precedent had been set beforehand. Yeah. If we're going from Elsie's perspective to Elsie's past perspective to Anne's perspective, 
how are we getting this much detail about Anne? And I think it's kind of a, a more omniscient, removed narrator to a degree. We're not literally reading the words on the page. We are gazing into that perspective. Yeah, I think this was more of a me thing than, uh, oh, this is a bad writing thing. I think this is more just, it, it was a little off-putting at first for me, but as I continued on, I got into it. Yeah, I wanted to say for my general opinions of the book is anyone who's listened to Darkly Lit for some time knows that my book preferences tend to be ghosts, haunted houses, and just the general gothic. I love gothic fiction, and this is a great modern gothic in that it's trying to evoke the style and the period of gothic literature, but it's not leaning so hard into like the way gothic, old gothic stories were written that it, it loses like more of the modern writing tropes or you know ways that you know, a story can be told. It, it does just enough to keep it couched in that time period and to make it work but doesn't lose you as a reader. I think it was actually pretty seamless in terms of the writing. And I just, again, I just love the vibe of the house, the atmosphere and the setup, the characters and the way that things play off. Everything is always very gloomy, very off-putting. And even when they go to different locations, like briefly, we return to London at one point in the book and London is as as awful and as sooty and mm -hmm. toxic feeling. Whereas it contrasts with the, the clean, but kind of almost fetid in terms of like cold, loamy quality of the environment of the bridge. It's a, it's a really fun contrast that every lo location we go to has a, I guess, a sinister, gloomy quality to it in different ways. And this, this story just drips with gothic atmosphere. And I, I really liked that. I do find the uh, use of uh, Silent Companions kind of interesting because I realized about midway through that this is a mannequin story slash doll story, but done in a very unique way. This is kind of like the mannequin story I kind of hope for to read like that sort of, oh, a mannequin suddenly appears and they're just there to be ominous. And and they only move when you're not looking at them, when you can't see them. Yeah. That's a classic trope. And uh, I know a lot of for the lay person be like, oh, it's a weeping angel scenario. And it kind of is. There's such, it's such an interesting idea that it's just these flat wooded figures that have been painted so realistically, uh, so in a, such a certain style well, the, that the, they seem to pop out. The, the style is called Triumph the Oil, which I, I looked up. You know those paintings that make it look like uh, you could jump into them or like, oh, there's a hole and you can fall into it. Or if you look at a ceiling and it makes it look bigger than it actually is and more grand. It, yeah, it's, it's a... It's like almost a forced perspective kind of thing. What do y'all think of the companions as our like spooky antagonists? I enjoyed it. Like we said, it had like really, even though it's supposed to be like someone writing down their story or from a journal, the literary really painted a really great visual for me. So I was like, man, I really want to see this like as a series or a movie. Cause it was like, like I could see just like the, the imagery of the companions just kind of standing there. You know, the characters are off in another room and maybe in the background you'd hear the sound of like wood scraping on wood. Like I just, I actually enjoyed that. Yeah. You know what? The writing really is cinematic mm -hmm. now that I think about it. There's some great sound design elements to this too. Yeah. Especially with the cliffhangers at almost every chapter is definitely felt like I was reading a series. Oh yeah. Like, I should be watching this as a series, because I would binge this. <laughs> this would be a great mini-series. Yeah. And, and then ending it with that fire. Actually, the fire was a great ending. Um, or a great... Climax? Climax, thank you. And also, I was grateful. The cat did not die. Yes. Yeah. Justice for Jasper. I was like, if this cat dies, I'm going to be so upset, and I'm going to curse this book. <laughs> Same. I thought the same thing too. I'm like, this cat better not die. This cat is trying. It deserves to live. Look, throw me every human atrocity that you want, but if the animal dies, 
I'm gonna be so mad. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess a, ho- a horse did die. A horse and a cow did die. Yeah. Justice for Beatrice. What do we think about Hedda as not necessarily a villain, but I would say a force of evil? I was kind of of two minds about it. Hedda was both a product of a ritual, supposedly a botched ritual, obviously magic being thrown in. And yeah, maybe there was an evil side to her. I can't entirely hate her because of all the circumstances she went through. There's a reason her ghost or whatever evil force was in her is inhabiting the companions and doing this stuff. And I think the setup with her was both tragic and a great way to give us the reason for the haunting. And I thought, especially when the ending came along, there's some things that Sarah says in the in the epilogue that I really enjoyed from the perspective of realizing that Hedda was saying those words mm-hmm. through Sarah, not Sarah herself. There's also that thought in my head that what happened might not necessarily all be magical and may be the result of madness. When at the end, when it's like, oh, we found Sarah and she's come to speak with you. I'm like, this bitch is totally going to throw her under the bus. I could see it a mile away because you've got this woman who's been trained just to be kind of an empty-headed nobody, basically to eventually marry. There's a point where she says, oh, I was hoping Rupert would marry me. I'm like, okay, there's the jealousy there. She stole the diamond necklace. Mm -hmm. She stole the diamond necklace. The fact that Elsie kept saying, I felt bad because... I was to inherit everything and Rupert said, no, you need to inherit everything. And I'm like, why? Why is Sarah getting nothing? I could see like that resentment from Sarah and then basically everything kind of goes her way at the end. So why would she give that all up? So I was like, I don't think Sarah's as nice of a person. It could be a combination of both Sarah and Hedda because when they first find Hedda's companion in the garret, she gets that splinter in her hand and it that, that wound never heals throughout the course of the book. They draw a lot of attention to that so when at the end she shows up and is acting a little different than usual and elsie actually points out how she sounds almost more girlish more flutish well and then she sees Hedda's reflection instead of uh sarah's reflection in the mirror in the room but here's the kicker i wanted to go up to this page of the book goodbye mrs brainbridge god grant you some rest i pray that in time you will understand what i have done I cannot keep my silence forever. I must be free. You can understand that from like the perspective of what's going on, but you could also see it as, as Hedda talking properly for the first time because Hedda was you know, born mute. She had a deformed tongue. The idea that Hedda did all this to finally be free. What I'm saying is that it could be possibly, yes, Hedda has taken over her or it's still all from the mind of a mad woman. That is a possibility, yes. And I kind of like that it could be both. It's more likely it is magical. There is evil forces at work. But I do kind of like that idea. It's like, well, maybe it could be. Yeah, I definitely want to go back and like kind of read it again with the idea of like, okay, what if Sarah is actually doing everything and just like taking advantage of um, Elsie's grief to drive her mad? Because I feel like I really liked Hedda and she did make me like low-key uncomfortable and like, man, if you get that poor boy killed, I'd be so mad. Where like I could see her being like okay you know botched ritual so like maybe there's some kind of evil in her but maybe she's also like just a child with extreme emotions yeah and like is not aware of like what like she's doomed her family to and like her mother specifically yeah that that's a distinct possibility as well this is just an angry child this is just an abused and neglected child and you and then maybe because we know sarah has read that first journal i don't know I, i feel like it would also be really interesting angle if like Sarah knew that story 
and used that to her advantage and like had discovered where the rest of the companions were because we learned that you know they're not just appearing out of thin air there was at one point multiple companions so maybe she's the one stealthily moving around and she was you know still staying at the bridge when the girl slit her wrist like oh yeah Mm -hmm. maybe maybe sarah did kill her and like set it up so that uh elsie had to come back you know I, i i enjoy both aspects of like yes give me a good haunted story but i also in those last moments it was only sarah who was with elsie i don't know it's fun fun to speculate it is it is there's just enough like doubt you could cast either way to make you second guess and that's a really good way for the writer to handle this situation i thought laura purcell did a fantastic job just keeping me hooked into the narrative and having me go but is it this is it this is it this you know me i like to lean toward the ghostliness Mm -hmm. but i do like the tantalizing possibility that it could all just be in elsie's head Mm -hmm. she could be a mad woman as we the story unpacks, we learn she herself, there's a lot of parallels you could draw between her and Hedda to a degree because of the abuse she suffered at the hands of her mother and father when they were when she was just a child at the match factory and how she felt like she had to go out of her way to protect Jolien. By murdering her father. Um, and her mother. And her and mother. mother. Oh yeah, and her mother, yeah. that's she right. She smothered her mother with a pillow and she thought Jolien didn't know. Interesting name. I've never heard of the name Jolion before. Uh, it might be a very old British name, so. It threw me for a bit because I was like, how do I read this? How do I pronounce it? And I was like, oh, is it like a weird Julian sort of? Like Jolion? Yeah, Jolion, Julian. I was like, it must be just like really uh, old yeah. for Julian, maybe. Maybe. We talked about Hedda. We talked about Elsie. What about Anne? Like, what do we think of the whole situation with Anne? Feels like marrying into the Bainbridge family leads into a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I think it's interesting that, in a weird way, Hedda was the product of Anne trying to kind of replace her dead sister. You know, again, a companion, a silent companion. Hedda was the original silent companion, Mm -hmm. even though that wasn't what she wanted. And the fact that she has an uncanny resemblance to Mary is a very interesting thing. I do pity Anne, but at the same time, Anne did jump to a lot of haughty conclusions that the rich would, you know, jump to, especially when she accused the boy and all of his kind of being thieves and vagabonds. Because yes, they use a certain term for Romany people in this story that is, you know, understandably now we understand it's derogatory, so. We're not using it on this podcast. No. I think in that aspect, it's hard to feel a little bad for her. She also made a mistake that I think a lot of parents make is in that they have a child with the intention of like what they want from that child, not understanding that that child's going to decide for themselves who they are and what they are yeah there's no promise at all like that that child is gonna be what you want it to be so now thinking about it there's a lot of themes going on here uh desire to make your children what what you hope them to be like there's a point where elsie says oh i imagine myself having a daughter and surprisingly looking a lot like hedda and then her also saying that eventually having a boy who dies that was kind of a confusing thing to me and I think was kind of a gaslighting thing where it's like, oh, I'm sorry, your son died covered in splinters. I'm like, what? <laughs> Part that made me uncomfortable was realizing the last thing she saw before she like fell and lost consciousness and then was in a delirium for long enough that she basically went through the childbirth was that the last companion she saw was like a caricature of Rupert. I think that's pretty horrific. Mm-hmm. And I was actually thinking when they were talking about the initially the sounds of the hissing, like when it sounded like a saw, we know later it's the sound of the companions moving but 
Did anyone else think that was actually the sound of like maybe the companions being cut out? Oh. The companions maybe creating other companions, like mm. cutting them out of wood? No, it didn't occur to me, but now that sounds interesting. That did occur to me when it got to the desk part where it said, oh, it suddenly broke apart. Oh, you mean in St. Joseph's? Yeah. When she, they like come in, she's like, she broke her desk. And she's like, I would remember if I broke my desk. Yeah. A companion didn't appear, did it? Like, no, after, no, no. The, the only time a companion appeared in the room was briefly when she had that nightmare and she thought she saw uh, Sarah as a companion. Oh, okay. Because that was the idea I had like, oh, when the desk broke, it it's that, that equivalent of making wood into something else. Yeah, I definitely gathered that. And sawing to something else. That's when it kind of clicked Oops. like, oh, maybe it's that's the hissing noise. Yeah, figured that's what it was. And then, of course, I like that that became the, the sound we associate with the companions moving around when you can't see them. Actually, I just thought of something. This is like a weird continuity thing. In the flashbacks with Anne, Anne has the, the diamond necklace. Mm-hmm. When Maripen's sister comes up, you know, comes to the house demanding mercy, but they, the drunken party tries to like get at her because she's, you know, because of who she is and Anne goes to save her. The girl manages to snatch the necklace from her neck before she's pushed out into the snow. Later, they, you know, she's found uh, frozen uh, under the ice in the river. How did Anne get the necklace back? When did the necklace come back into the Bainbridge family? There's there's a weird thing. Did anybody else notice that? Hmm. Yeah, but I guess I just made the assumption is that if they discovered her body, then they got the necklace back. Uh, maybe I'm reading into it, but I don't know. I just see like there was an odd gap of time where the necklace, because Anne even wondered if the girl still had the necklace. Well, they said, in Rickworth's letter, it said he pulled it from the family vault or something. Yeah. So it somehow yeah. came back to the family after after the girl stole it. It did. Yeah, I was just curious. Again, it's just a really tight little novel. There's all these little details that keep resurfacing that are introduced early on, and I appreciate that thematically. How do you feel about, like, um, I believe it was Helen who turned out to be Rupert's... No, not Rupert. It's... Uh, Rupert's father. Rupert's father's chi- uh, daughter. So that would have been uh, Rupert's w- half-sister. Yeah, she's a, she's a bastard child. Correct. With uh, Mrs. Mrs. Holt. Yeah. How'd you feel about that twist? I was a little underwhelmed by it. Same. Same. I was just kind of like there. Mm-hmm. For the most part, it's tight. I thought that was a bit of an unnecessary detail. But Agreed. But for the most part, this is pretty well written. Oh, absolutely. Do we want to take some listener comments? So we only had one uh, listener comment. Unfortunately, around this time during November and December with the ho- holidays and all that, it's kind of difficult to finish reading i only finished this book yesterday huh. and you only finished it today well yeah we were all busy but also i kept throwing caution to the idea that oh this is such a short read i can get this done in no time and well i did but i waited till the last minute and i probably shouldn't have but i'm sure other people did the same thing because they saw it was only a 300 page book instead of like something along the lines of our share of night which is oh gosh 600 some odd pages yeah yeah so we have a couple of questions and comments from Bringer. Thank you, Bringer. Did anyone else think the rules of the companions did not make sense? Like, how did they destroy her desk in the cell? It was weird that the novel made wood a bad thing. I think the idea was she actually destroyed it. Yeah, I got the impression that, like, she destroyed it herself. I think that's why it kind of lends to the whole, is it this really all in her head? Mm-hmm. Is she actually mentally unstable? Or is it really... I, I, I do think it actually is supernatural. In this case, I do think everything supernatural is happening. But in this case, it is proven that she does have trauma. She is suffering to the point where she can't speak. And I think this is causing outbursts. Loads of wood-related trauma even before the bridge, though. Just saying. Yeah. With the matchstick factory. She comes from a freaking matchstick factory. Yeah, I mean, jeez. I like kind of like the idea that 
the theme of the novel boils down to the thing that someone is to be afraid of is wood. I think that's interesting. The house being called the bridge is a deliberate choice too, you know? Bridges are made of wood and bridges are points of transition, maybe between our world and somewhere else. Putting that out there. For whatever reason, I wasn't a fan of this book. I felt the villain was lackluster and there wasn't enough build-up to it. There wasn't really a villain per se. I mean, I guess you could call Hedda the villain. I would call Hedda an antagonist or a force to be reckoned with, but and the companions were just something primal, something sinister. There's not really a huge motive or goals, except for maybe for Hedda, but I don't know. I, I have to disagree. I don't think there was a lackluster villain in this. There wasn't some grandiose scheme or overarching thing. It was just this kind of unknowable, haunting, sinister evil in the background mm-hmm. and weighing heavy from the sins of the past and stuff. And everybody in this story is pretty flawed in their own way. So it's kind of just kind of pulling people apart, the seams, and, and looking at the everybody, the kind of evil that's in everybody to a degree. Yeah, we say like everyone was a villain in a different way. Mm-hmm. There was head father who like refused to let her partake in the, in the little party thing Hedda herself the mistake that Anne made and like use doing magic that she shouldn't have been doing Elsie you know murdering her parents and kind of being a little cruel to Sarah yeah even though like she's inheriting everything that should have been Sarah's like everyone was like not a good person maybe not necessarily a villain but like contributed to the bad things that are happening in their own way oh yeah except Jasper Jasper's perfect in every way (laughs) jasper is good kitty boy everybody loved jasper i'm glad that jasper ended up just living in the asylum fat and happy with like the superintendent or whatever that was awesome something good happened happened had to happen to someone in this story and i'm glad it was the cat how did mrs holt or the other people in the house not notice there kept being more and more companions if you started with three and now there are four or five or six wouldn't you notice i mean they did Kinda. They did notice. They assumed that, oh, that person, someone else must have dragged it out, or someone else must have found it, someone else must have moved it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there were many of them back in 1635, like, Anne did buy the whole lot in order to impress uh, the royalty that were there. So they were all there. And I I think it was originally they just found the one, and then they just assumed, oh, I guess they found others. Mm Mm-hmm. Did we even talk about the source of them the, with the little weird curio shop that wasn't there the next day? Oh, yeah, that disappears. That was another point of speculation. It was like, oh, is this cursed vendor sharing or like magical vendor ser- selling cursed wares? Like, Oh, and the, and not only that, he kept pushing for her. She's like, oh, maybe he's, he's like, what's there to think about? Do it now. Yeah, he was trying to get rid of them. So even before that, there was something something sinister about the companions. That, I would love to come across that little shop and like a D&D campaign. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, David. I'm thinking about it. Don't worry. <laughs> There's a book or a short story I think Stephen King wrote like uh that had that sort of needful things? Yes. Basically, oh, the d- devil is selling items and if you if you buy one it's it's exactly what you want, but it'll curse you. Although I think this one's a little more creepier and more subtle. Yeah, you wouldn't know it would just disappear later. It does a little, it is the appropriately off kilter with all the oddities that are in there. But there's nothing inherently weird right off the bat about Mr. Samuels. I mean, he's just a guy named Mr. Samuels. Why did the brother send her back when Mabel died when he was just saying, hey, you got to rest and see doctors? Here's the thing. At first I went, yeah, that was kind of weird. But problem is, Elsie is the sole inheritor of the estate. Yeah. She, she has to be the one to go put her affairs in order legally. And that includes when a maid dies. 
If Sarah had been cut into the will, none of this would have happened. I got a question. Why do you think Rupert gave everything to her and no one else? Because it's his wife and she's carrying her his child. Yeah, but like not even diamonds to his cousin Sarah, who he brought over to watch her or like none of the rest of the family. I mean, I think he fully intended on housing Sarah and having her live with them. And I think he felt that was, you know, the extent of like what he owed her because this is his wife now. This is going to carry my bloodline. Then this is who I want to, you know, invest, give my family heirlooms because this is my family now. Yeah, this is a old, an old, old moneyed family. Yeah. G- good point. Yeah, yeah. it's the I, I keep forgetting she was because it's only for a short period of time that she was carrying a child, mm-hmm. and that child would be the basically the sole inheritor of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, that makes more sense. Mm. If she hadn't carried that child, I think it might have gone differently. Yeah. Yeah. Peter was the only smart character for getting out of there. Ha <laughs> ha! The lone survivor. Peter's the footman. Yeah, because this has quite the body count. Elsie and Sarah are the only survivors in this for the most part. Even Mr. Underwood died. Felt kind of unexpected, but yeah, he was like, yep, you're dead too now. Those two and the cat are the only survivors in this. Uh Uh-huh. Well, and I guess Mr. Peters. Yeah, because he left and we don't know what happened to him. Uh Uh-huh. Hopefully he got out soon enough that he's like, I'm grateful I didn't stay. Yep. That's all the questions and comments do we have. Do we have any last minute thoughts? Those are my last minute thoughts. I decided to do them in the style of a companion. (laughs) I don't know. I think it was was a good fun read. I'm glad I picked it. It felt very, like we said earlier, a good cold weather read. Yeah. I think the best way to describe it is a cozy horror. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a cozy murder mystery. This was a cozy horror. Oh, absolutely. It was nice to read a gothic novel. I think the last gothic novel we read was Mexican gothic. I think so, yeah. Which is also a great read. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I will reread that again, that's for sure. That's, a, that's, a, that's an all-time favorite here on this podcast. Which, by the way, now that we're at the uh, the end of our, our season, our, our first proper season where we, we plan the books ahead of time, what are we going to do now? So I know we mentioned that we would be announcing in this episode what we would be reading for the next season. But to be honest, we're having trouble nailing down what exactly we want to read. We each get uh, a choice of two, and I know what one I want, but I don't know what the second one I want is, but I think the other hosts feel the same way. So we decided we're going to announce it in January. Expect an announcement on January 13th. As per tradition. And then our next season will start on July 13th, 2024. Which will sound like a lot of time to read the six books, but don't dilly-daddle, because... It'll build up. It's true. We might just throw something at you. We might decide to read House of Leaves. I don't know. <laughs> just <one>. well, what? <laughs> no. House of Leaves is probably going to be its own podcast. That's going to be its own season. Yeah. Of, in yeah. This one, if not its yeah, own complete yeah. podcast separate from this. Yeah. It's a spinoff podcast of Darkly Lit. Darkly Leaved. <laughs> and that by the time you finish this book with us, you'll want to leave. <laughs> this might be the end of this uh, our first season for Darkly Lit, but there are other podcasts that you can listen to on the creative horror network at creativehorror.com or you can look on uh youtube just type of creative horror and we'll be the first ones you see our other podcasts include the jameson tapes undercooked analysis as well as our completed series of trick or track midnight marinara and and the witching hour 
And also, expect to see more podcasts coming up. With the completion of uh, Midnight Marinara, we're, we're trying to plan uh, new ideas for new podcasts, so stay tuned for that. Lots of projects on the horizon. It's just pitting them down and also recovering. That's hard. But we'll get there. Trust us. Have we ever steered you wrong before? Don't answer that. Until then, happy holidays. I hope you have a nice, cozy winter. Be sure to look over your shoulder and be weary of any silent companions that are out there. Okay, I guess I better take all these back to the thrift store, huh? Wait, where'd you get those? Oh, I thought they would be a nice surprise. Oh, well, they'll blow out the candles for us. Good evening, intrepid listeners. This is the Pasta Shade, the host of Midnight Marinara, and this podcast is part of CreativeHorror.com, a network of podcasts and creators working together to build a constructive community of horror fans. For more content like this, visit us at CreativeHorror.com. <laughs>